So good morning again. All right, good morning. It is rainy. It's cloudy. I get it. Um, my name is David. I am the creative arts director here at Grace Community Church. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome you this morning, especially if it's your first time with us. Um, we do have in your bulletin, there's two things I want to mention since some of you weren't here when we started. Um, right as you open it, there is a uh, piece of paper that's going to fall out into your lap. And we want to remind you, if you're a volunteer currently with any of those ministries listed, or you want to volunteer for any of the things there, um, we have a lunch next week that we need a head count for. And so if any of those are areas that you feel God leading you to serve, then please uh, come and join us for lunch next week. But give us a heads up so we can have enough pizza there. Um, RSVP um, to any of the ministry leaders or straight to the office or on the city. Um, Our teaching elder and and lead pastor Brad Talley is finishing up his vacation and so I'm filling in second week in a row and so I'm really if you came again after last week I appreciate that Um, (laughs) because I am not a teaching elder Um, I definitely recognize that my calling is to to be a worship leader to be behind a guitar and say little snippets of sermons in between songs I'm much more comfortable with that but I'm grateful that you're here this morning Um, Let's, uh, we're going to be looking through the book of Mark because last, last week we almost wrapped up um, our several month long sermon series in the book of Mark. And today we're, we're totally going to wrap it up. Uh, we typically preach in an expository manner here at Grace. So what that means is walking through a specific portion of text um, each week and mining it for all that is in there. Uh, all that God has for us in his word. Uh, But this week, we'll be looking at the broad themes through all of Mark, um, but making note of some specific places. Uh, So if you had a favorite verse in Mark or a favorite passage, um, this would be a great time to make sure that you marked it. Um, Or uh, if your home group is meeting this week, share that in your home group as we prepare for the next section of uh, the Bible we're going to be walking through starting in September. Uh, But our subtitle for the series in Mark has been The Way of the Disciple is the way of the king, which is the way of the cross. Now, we love stories. We communicate through stories. Our culture in general, and then each of us as individuals, we love stories. So from my toddlers, to whom I read multiple stories each night, uh, to me and my wife, who enjoy stories through movies, or a show that we're watching together, or a book that one of us may be reading, stories are a prominent means of communication. Because think about it, we spend, we as, even just, just look at our church, we would spend untold amounts of money on films, or on cable TV, Uh, In large part, so that we might engage with a meaningful story of some kind, right? Some of us read novels. I realize that some of us actually just wait for that to be made into a movie, but some of us read novels, and we are seeking to engage with a story. And so God communicates through story as well. A story with Jesus at the center, and in which we play a part. So sometimes when we're deeply engaged in books or films or TV or even other people's dramatic lives via Facebook or Instagram, sometimes we're substituting other stories for our own. Like we're so enamored by some celebrity's life that we neglect our own. We're so fully consumed by uh, media, we're so fully locked on to the internet that we're not actually living our part in God's story. So please hear me say this. 
The gospel is the truest story, and it is still happening. At once, it's happened, and it's still happening. It's not over yet. And you are part of this, the truest, best story. So church, don't be unnecessarily distracted by stories that are other, or caught up in other stories at the expense of the adventure that God is calling you to live. So we have the privilege this year of walking through the story of Jesus uh, from Mark's perspective. And he largely recorded according to Peter's perspective, which we know from history and, and tradition. But why did God lead Mark to write down as a narrative? Because historically speaking, the letters of Paul had already been circulating. So why didn't Mark just write a letter like it was already set the precedent for? Why did he choose a narrative or, or a story? I think because stories invite us to identify with characters. So think about this. There are some of you who are way too invested in some stories. Uh, I'll throw myself in, the, in that too. Uh, there, there's a show I watch in which the writers frequently will terminate a character's role on the show, if you catch my meaning. Um, there are fans who have made t-shirts that say, if so-and-so dies, we riot. Okay, stories help us identify with characters, sometimes too much so. But even if they're very unlike us, but especially if there's anything like us, we identify with them. So Paul's letters, Paul's letters are so much more meaningful and powerful for us because we know his story from Acts. Stories can also weave together many of the forces that shape human experience, and the, and the concrete situations. All these things happening separately come together at once. So Pastor Brad and Ricky and Keisha used to mock me at staff meetings because I haven't watched any of 24 yet. But I know what's up. I read nerd blogs. Like, I know how this works. Basically, the phenomenon of 24 is that all sorts of plot lines come together at once. You've got subplots and foreign relations and personal stories. And all of these forces of human experience all come to a head in one hour of this man's life. And it's really compelling. And in 24 hours, he doesn't even go to the bathroom or eat. It's magical. (laughs) So Mark, Mark shows us this in Jesus' life. So consider, not the last part, but consider, <laughs> consider the trial of Jesus. The trial of Jesus from Mark 14, okay? At the trial of Jesus, we have political forces and religious leaders and Peter's betrayal and Barabbas' release and false accusations and the verdict. Hearing this told in bullet point form would probably be tedious and maybe confusing, but as a story, we're engaged with every turn. Stories also draw us into their world in order to undergird shared assumptions and then challenge some assumptions too. So, I met a couple of youth um, at the camps I was speaking for two weeks ago, and they told me, like, I introduce myself and I say, hey, you need to know who I am so you'll hear me preach. Like, I'm a huge nerd. I love nerd stuff. I love my wife. I love Jesus. Like, I give them that kind of intro and so usually I'll get some afterwards. These two kids came up to me and they said, we, we're nerds too. And I'm like, awesome. That's why I tell you this. I can identify with you. But then they said, they are learning Elvish. Okay, for those of you unsure, this is the language that J.R.R. Tolkien fully developed for his Lord of the Rings trilogy. 
Now that's some commitment as an author. But these youth and thousands of other crazy people have been drawn into the world that Tolkien created. Drawn into that because Middle Earth does draw us in. And when we find affirmed there a lot of the shared values that we enter with, good is good, evil is evil. We see these things as we're drawn into that world. But then we have our assumptions challenged too because who would have thought that Frodo had it in him? He's just a hobbit, right? We enter with assumptions and they're challenged as we're drawn into the story. So in Mark, the shared values of believers would be consistently undergirded and built up and encouraged. And all of the assumptions about a powerfully immediate Messiah are challenged. So all of our assumptions about power in general are just flipped upside down. And in the course of the story, we have to work through this tension of Jesus' true identity as king, as Messiah, but also as servant. So why is Mark's telling of this story like so action-filled and compelling? Well, let's remember the context of why and when Mark wrote. The gospel according to Mark was penned around the same time that Nero was persecuting Christians in and around Rome. Caused a fire, blamed it on the Christians, wanted a scapegoat, and then began to burn Christians. And so Mark is in and around Rome. At this time, he is in the middle of this. So he wrote to the believers in that area. So in the midst of persecution and suffering, believers needed to be reminded of the king who suffered for them. They need to be reminded that the authority and power that he wields, even as he chooses to serve and not be served. If you think about it, Mark might be the the gospel to, to speak directly to our brothers and sisters in Iraq and Syria, who are experiencing what happened in the first century today. They need to know and be reminded and be encouraged by the power of the gospel. That is, Jesus has suffered on their behalf and is with them even in their suffering. So Mark's telling of uh, the story of Jesus, it actually, it paints the most uh, broad picture of his emotional life. There are more emotional descriptions of Jesus in Mark than in the other three Gospels. And so Jesus is a passionate Messiah who suffers deeply. So this is a story that's engrossing. And it's literally compelling. It's full of action in the present tense. And it calls us to action as well. So we started to walk through Mark with this framework in mind. The way of the disciple is the way of the king which is the way of the cross. Why? Is this our subtitle? Let's answer that as we walk through it and examine some of the key passages of Mark. So hopefully you'll remember these places uh, in the text or you'll note them and go back and be reminded. So the way of the disciple. This refers to those who have responded to the call uh, of the gospel and are following Jesus. They've responded to the call and they're following Jesus. It, it would stand to reason that all Christians are disciples. But you may have experienced this is unfortunately not the case. I mean, you've seen this. We, we live in a Christian nation. At one time, you could say this about Europe. Uh, go back even further. If you recall from church history last year, we encountered the key event of Constantine making Christianity the officially sanctioned religion of the Roman Empire. And if we're honest about this institution of Christianity... We realize that surely 
not all who call themselves Christian are actually disciples. Not all those who cry, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, as Jesus himself warns. So the way of the disciple is a bit more specific. It's more intentional than merely Christian. A disciple is called to follow. From the very first chapter of Mark, we get the call of Jesus to follow him. And by the second chapter, those who have answered this call to follow are called disciples. And they're called to follow Jesus' teaching. Because being a disciple certainly means following Jesus' teaching. In in Mark, we get a good selection of teaching uh, from the very beginning of his ministry. Matthew and Luke include a bit more teaching. But Mark, he pairs Jesus' authoritative miracles with teaching every time. And then... In Mark chapter 8, verses 29 and 34 and 35, Jesus' teaching and his identity are both the pivotal pieces of the story. So let's hear that. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And calling to the crowd, to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And then, right on the heels of that, Jesus warns that those who follow him must be prepared to take up their cross. So to follow Jesus, to follow his teaching, is more than just a cultural context that you're born into. It's more than trying to do the good things that he taught. It's trusting Jesus all the way to death. Or rather, trusting his death and resurrection. Following Jesus' teaching can also be thought of in terms of his mindset. So if you remember the language from Philippians 2 Paul says, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Precisely because Jesus humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, God highly exalted him. So if we follow Jesus' humility, follow Jesus even to the cross, we will then follow him to resurrection. As we empty ourselves, God will fill us up. And and this isn't just good advice for life. This is a way of living that is counterintuitive. It's like, losing your life in order to find it. All the while, being a disciple means being shaped by discipline. Of course, you may have thought that was coming with thinking about those words and their relationship. Being shaped by the one whose image you desire to reflect, right? Being shaped by the person that you're following. You want to be like them. So you're modeling yourself after the one who is discipling. So the disciple, the way of the disciple, is necessarily the way of the king. And the way of the disciple of Jesus, the king, is this way from Mark 8. And so for us today, the question is, how are we shaped and formed as we follow the king? How do we take up our cross and lose our lives for the sake of Jesus? And we find a key to that in Romans chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So be transformed by the renewing of your mind in the gospel, in a life of worship. A life that is not about you, but is about Jesus. So denying ourselves, like from Mark 8, denying ourselves does not mean fasting every day necessarily. It means choosing every day to deny our urge to put ourselves in God's place. It does mean denying the authority of the self or any idol that we've placed on the throne of our hearts. So we live a life of worship that's pointed at the creator, not at created things. A life that ascribes worth, that's what worship means, ascribes worth to him, that praises him first. Okay, so what are the tools that can help us grow in that, that guide that transformation process? If we have confessed the gospel to be true, the Holy Spirit of God empowers us as we renew our minds and are shaped as disciples by the word of God. So for the first century believers, they had an oral tradition and firsthand witnesses to Jesus' power and resurrection that would guide their discipleship. They had the testimony of the apostles still with them. And then in God's sovereignty, he led several of the apostles and leaders to write down their experiences a few years later. And God has preserved those words into his word for us. So we learn how to follow the way. We learn to recognize Jesus' teaching. We learn to follow Jesus' mindset all through the scripture that you hold on your hands or in your hand if it's on a device. But just because we have easy access to God's word, please don't take it easily. Don't neglect the power to transform that is rooted in God's word, the power to guide a disciple. So here's a side note. You may have noticed last week as I was preaching through in Mark 16 that I didn't really speak to verses 9 through 20 on Sunday morning. If you have your Bibles, let's look at this. Um, There were several questions in the home group notes about this, uh, but many of our home groups are on break until September. Uh, So as you were reading with me on Sunday morning, did you notice that I stopped at verse 8? The scripture that you hold in your hands or have downloaded to your device is the result of more than two millennia of transmission and translation. So hear me, there is no other religious text like it in the world. There is no text like the Bible. There is no other book as intricately designed across generations, across languages, as carefully preserved, as devotedly studied as the Bible. So when we encounter these last verses in Mark, we must pause at least briefly to ask ourselves, do we trust God to preserve this text exactly as he intends it to be? And that question is an important one, and it it guides our trust of the entire account. So we at Grace Community Church, uh, we believe that the original texts penned by the authors of Scripture are all inerrant, meaning they're without error. Unfortunately, we don't have any of those original texts. We do, however, have so many, 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 many copies of every book in the Bible from many different generations. And by comparative study, there's no other book like the Bible. 
But in this particular instance, uh, the two oldest Greek uh, translations that we have, the Greek text that we have, uh, they don't include verses 9 through 20. However, a majority of texts that are in existence do include these verses. Like several notable church fathers and historians do not include these verses. And several notable church fathers and historians do include these verses. And it's important. It's important to be aware of how this book came to our hands. If we're going to be able to give an answer for the hope that we have. So if you're in chapter 16, you're looking at these verses with me. I'm actually looking forward to asking Mark in eternity, did you mean to end the book like that? Like with a cliffhanger? And hopefully finding out, you know, the beautiful story of what's going on here. Because I hate cliffhangers. Like, I honestly love binge-watching a show on Netflix rather than watching it week to week because those in-between times, if there's a cliffhanger, is torture, right? I mean, I can only imagine how, you know, those three days between Jesus' death and resurrection, they had to have been torturous for some of the few who may have remembered that he said he was going to rise again, and they're waiting. But man, what a season premiere. (laughs) Talk about worth the wait. I digress. Uh, Although it is important to note that some existing manuscripts don't include this section, um, because, I mean, there's a verse in 9 through 20 here that's sometimes taken out of context, but the weight of tradition and previous translations is significant as we close out our study of Mark's account of the gospel. Um, And so I want you to know that you can trust this book is exactly as God intends it to be for our joy and our edification. So let's actually look at verse 15 here. I love this perspective of the Great Commission. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. I love it because all creation is broken by the curse of sin. And the good news of what Jesus has done in redemption and the promise of restoration is thus good news for all of creation. Because all of this will be made new. Mosquitoes will feed on fruit. Snakes won't be scary. Poison ivy will just be ivy. And that's good news, right? But in all seriousness, what a beautiful way to consider our commission to make disciples. It's the Great Commission from Matthew 28 where we get this language specifically as he remembers Jesus' words before his ascension. Go and make disciples. The implication in Mark and the direct language of Matthew, they do not say go and make converts, but make disciples. Just as we who have confessed that the gospel is true are disciples, we're called to make more disciples. So we're called to tell them how to become a follower of Jesus, a Christian, and then to walk with them until he comes again. How awesome is it that Ted gets to play a role in that for these tribes in the jungle continually going to visit, Roy and Margaret continuing to walk with them. Yeah, they made converts when they preached the gospel, but they are walking with them in discipleship and now sending them to disciple even more. I almost wish they had mentioned, Ted shared this link on Facebook. Okay, Brazil hosted the World Cup, the most watched thing on television and the internet in the history of time. And two weeks later, a tribe of Indians who have never even put on clothes come out of the jungle in the same country. There are 77 literally unreached people groups in the jungles in Brazil. So not only are we called to 
go and, and tell them of the gospel, then walk with them through that. Because all of creation, even the middle of this jungle that you can't even get to, all of creation needs to hear the gospel and then learn what it is to walk with Jesus, to be a disciple. And the way of the disciple is the way of the king. So to consider the king, Jesus subverted every messianic expectation. He subverted them. Mark doesn't get into this quite as much as the other gospels do. But one of the reasons that Peter's confession from Mark 8, that Jesus is the Christ, is so momentous, is that Jesus continually spoke and acted in ways that completely trumped the assumptions of the Jewish people about what their Messiah was supposed to be like. Think again, when it came to the trial of Jesus, the riled up people gathered there, they were more interested in a Messiah like the zealot Barabbas. One who'd not be afraid of violence as a method of overthrowing the oppressor of God's people. That's the Messiah they wanted. Now, if you've ever read John's description of Jesus when he returns to finally establish his rule and reign, in Revelation, Jesus' description, it's enough to scare the most tatted up, hardened sociopath. Jesus will indeed institute his messianic reign over all creation in the appointed time. First, he had to accomplish this phase of his father's plan. At the same time that he subverted all the messianic expectations, Jesus fulfilled every messianic prophecy. And we get this from the very beginning of Mark. In Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, he quotes Isaiah 40. Because although Mark, he doesn't have a genealogy to start his account, like Matthew and Luke do, and then John just jumps to the beginning of time for his genealogy. But Mark, he doesn't have a genealogy. He wastes no time in establishing Jesus' identity as Messiah and Son of God. And here's the proof from Isaiah, speaking of John the baptizer and his ministry of preparation for the Lord himself. And then in Mark 12, verse 10, Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the Psalms are full of prophecy, whether you've thought about that or not. And, and Jesus himself interprets this for us in Mark 12. Then if you think about it, all through Mark 15, Isaiah 53 is crystal clear. When Brad preached uh, from this text last month, you may remember that Burton Kelly, they read from Isaiah 53 during our time of music. It's really difficult really difficult, even for the skeptic, to read Isaiah 53 and then read the crucifixion of Jesus and not have at least a hmm moment, if not an aha moment, or maybe even an oh no moment. Because God had a plan from the beginning of creation to redeem his people. And he told us all along, Jesus' life and death and resurrection made it absolutely clear that God is in control. So if you've never compared uh, this prophecy with uh, Jesus' crucifixion account, please take the time to do that uh, so that you might be encouraged in the authority and truth of God's word and humbled by Jesus' great sacrifice for you. Because the way of the king is the way of the cross. Jesus' identity as king over all things is a key theme of Mark, particularly chapters 1 through 8, with chapters 9 through 16 focusing on the inevitable road to the cross. So Mark clearly sets the tone in chapter 1 by quoting that part of Isaiah. This is the Messiah who is the Son of God, who is the Lord. He is an anointed one, is what Messiah means, with no equal, 
He's the king above all kings. He's the Lord above all lords. And then Jesus speaks directly of the kingdom of God in the first words of Jesus recorded in Mark 1. And as I was reminded earlier this week, a, king, a kingdom necessitates a king. And Jesus' first words are to proclaim his kingdom. In the end of chapter 2, Jesus then refers to himself as Lord of the Sabbath. The title Lord in that time was generally reserved for someone who is a king or a ruler. So Jesus clearly states a second time in as many chapters that he is king over everything, even the day of rest. In chapter 4, Jesus is Lord of the storm. The weather itself obeys his command. So this is not just an insightful teacher or a radical rabbi or a really good person that Mark is talking about. This man is the son of God, and his kingship extends to all creation. In every instance of healing, Jesus proclaims his kingship over the natural order. And then in Mark 14 and 15, his trial and death, Pilate names him as king. First in word during that prosecution process, and then in an inscription that was marched before him and then hung on the cross above him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. So there's no mistaking that Mark wants us to see Jesus as the King, and he is worth following, even in the face of the truth that the way of the King is the way of the cross. Our first encounter with the way of the cross is from chapter 8 of Mark. Because here Jesus mentions the cross before it's even on the radar of any of his disciples. So we read this verse in light of what we know is the whole story of Mark. But remember, those hearing it the first time, put yourself in the place of someone who's not heard this, doesn't know what's coming. They hear Jesus say in the middle of teaching, take up our cross? That's disgusting. What a humiliating way to die. No respectful person is crucified. And yet Jesus makes it very clear that following him means following him to the cross. And all throughout scripture, one of my favorite things to encounter is a but, the conjunction. And here's a great place. Here's a great place for a but. Because we follow Jesus to the cross, but Jesus bears all of that disgust. He bears all of the humiliation for us. All of the shame of the cross, all of the mocking, all of the pity, Jesus bears it all for us. So as we follow him to the cross, we actually take shelter there. And that would have made no sense to the people hearing this teaching in Mark 8. But for us, as part of the story, what joy, what peace we find at the foot of the cross. Where Jesus' death means our life. His cross means our adoption. His blood means our cleansing. His brokenness means our wholeness. If we lose ourself on the way to the cross, we gain all the riches we could ever need in Jesus and in a restored relationship with the God of creation. The way of the king is the way of the cross. And then from chapter 10, verse 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus did not come to serve, but to, not to be served, but to, to serve. The way of the cross 
means serving, just as we have been served. Jesus lowered himself in every opportunity. So just as we follow him, as we let the word and the spirit mold us to look like him, we're gonna more and more recognize these opportunities every day to serve our coworkers, to serve our families, to serve that neighbor that we're called to love. Because the way of the king is the way of the cross and serving instead of being served. And of course, from chapter 15, the way of the cross is laid out in all its brutality. But in the middle of the suffering, in the midst of this literally crucial moment in history, once and for all, the punishment of sin has been paid. The judgment has been poured out completely on Jesus. So you don't have to atone for your sins. (laughs) Jesus did that. You don't have to live a perfect life for God to love you. Jesus already did that. Do you trust that? Do you believe that God's love for you is complete because of Jesus? This is the gospel that we proclaim of first importance to us, as Paul would say, that Jesus was born according to the scripture's prophecy. He lived a perfectly sinless life. And then he died the death that we deserve for our sin in our place. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become righteous before God. And then from chapter 16, the way of the cross, the way of the cross is not the end. He is risen. We need to not just reserve those words for Easter Sunday morning. Every sunrise is a reminder that he is alive. Following Jesus to the cross means remembering that the fullness of the gospel includes the ongoing story in which we play a part. Jesus will come again. And as this story unfolds in the meantime, we each have a story to tell that's just as compelling as Mark's story. Each of us has a story to tell that's just as compelling as Mark's. And so you may be saying in your brain, no, my life's pretty boring. I don't have anything worth telling. Look, even the most mundane, simple life, the fact that God loves you and saved you is a miracle. Let me tell you, if you believe that a man literally rose from the dead and that the creator of all things loves you individually, that's a story you're a part of that is worth telling. Each of us who believe the gospel have been set apart as the people of God. We've been given the commission to tell this story to every nation and to even all creation. Because people love stories. So go and tell them the way of the disciple, which is the way of the king, which is the way of the cross. Would you pray with me? God, we are so grateful for the opportunity to consider your word deeply, both as we gather on Sundays and as we meet in home groups and even the fact that we have the scriptures with us in so many different forms all the time. I pray that we would not take that for granted, but rather take advantage of it. Help us to be rooted deeply in your word. Help us to find hope and peace that you intend for us to find there as we suffer. 
And God, as our brothers and sisters suffer in Iraq and Syria, we pray for your hope and your peace to be tangibly present with them. We pray for your spirit to move in powerful ways to preserve life, to bring glory to you. God, we cannot comprehend what is happening. And yet even still, many of us are suffering in our own ways. So we pray that we would see Jesus as a servant who suffers on our behalf and as the king who reigns over it. Help us to find him worth following by the power of your spirit at work in us. God, we believe, so help our unbelief, even as is recorded here in Mark. We thank you for the opportunity that it is to walk as disciples together. We don't have to do this by any means alone. You walk with us through the power of your spirit as we are modeled uh, in the shape of Jesus. Our brothers and sisters walk with us. And God, we want to follow the king even to the cross. Help us to live this story and not be afraid of it. Help us to follow you wherever you would lead every day. And God, we love you and are grateful for all that you have done in Christ, that you are doing through your spirit and that you will do continually through your church. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray and know that you hear us. Amen. Would you stand for the benediction? From Ephesians chapter 5. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.